0: All right. Well, it was Christmas 1989. Our family was putting up the Christmas tree after uh, Thanksgiving, and we had one of those old-school Christmas trees that you had to place in the the, the stem, right? And they, they were color-coded on the branches, maybe with some, like, duct tape of some sort, whatever that may be. But on each branch, you know, it had, like, they had the yellow, and that was at the base, and then it had the red, and then it had the browns, and then it And then it got hard, and it had the dark greens, and then it had the purples. (laughs) And the problem for me happened when we started to put those dark greens and purples on there together, and I I was misplacing where those branches should go on on the tree there. And so uh, as we were going, I think my family started to notice something's not right. Things are out of place, and and I think my mom, who is here today—hey, (laughs) Mom— said something like, well, who keeps putting these uh, in the wrong place? And maybe she said it like that. It was was when I was like six. So maybe it was more like, who keeps putting these in the wrong place? It's not her at all. (laughs) If you know her, that would never be her way of saying it. (laughs) But anyways, the story goes on. And and I, I, looking like a a, a scared cat, said, "Uh, me? Um, And and as we talked about it, I, I realized... Um, that I was partially colorblind. And, and, and so some of the, the darker colors and hues started to blend together into one another, and I, and I couldn't tell the difference. And I just remember that moment being a, a really frightening moment for me and a really scary moment of, of going, how can this be? Like, Why can't I see things rightly? How, what's wrong with me? And I started asking like, the deeper questions. What else is wrong with me? And that, that's a scary place to be, uh, when you, you can't trust your senses, saying, can, can I believe what I'm seeing? What else is there that, that I, I have to doubt? And I don't know if anyone here has ever doubted themselves, and you're very you're self-conscious about yourself. It's even scarier when you're doubting reality, like, do I even see the world the way the rest of the world sees the world? And so it's a frightening place to be. And I think Christians... Today are starting to ask some of those similar questions, like, do I even believe some of these things? Like, what's true? What's right? Like, what is real? And so today, we're going to be kickstarting a new series at Mosaic called Orthodox: Foundational Truths to Treasure, and, and what we're wanting to do is to look at some very basic truths in Christianity that I think for many of us feel like we know, uh, but we want to unpack them a little bit more. Or, or maybe there's some terms out there like ecclesiology or eschatology or justification or the Trinity, and you're like, well, I know what it is, but why don't you speak share it for my kids (laughs) so just you make sure you speak it on the third grade level so that all of us could really understand it right Um, and so I feel like that's where a lot of us are at for their benefit Uh, but before we jump into uh, this uh, foundational deeply rooted truth I think we have to ask the question before we get to what are those deep truths mean and are the question that we have to ask is how do we even know anything Like, how can we know anything? You ever had someone tell you something so wild and so crazy? Like, there's Domino's Pizza now has self-driving cars. (laughs) And you're like, no. How (laughs) is that possible? And all you have to say, some of you guys are cool with this, well, I saw it on a TV commercial, and that's it. That settles it, (laughs) and you believe it. I still don't believe it. I had not seen it driving around Waco yet. I have to see with my own eyes is one way of responding to it. But others are going, if they're going to spend the money on the marketing, they probably, they probably figured it out. Anyways, this is, really, this is really not the point of the sermon, <laughs> but I want to talk about it later. So let's, let's talk about this later. Some of you guys want to talk about this, self-driving cars. Um, what I really want us to talk about is how do we know what we know? How how, how, do we, how can we know anything? How can we be sure of anything? How, how can we know what we know? And so today, we're, we're going to be stretching some of our brains a little bit and asking those questions. Um, and, and so we're going to do that in three ways. We're going to search for hints, hopes, and heroes. That's right. Hints, hopes, and heroes. That's the outline. Now, I want to start talking about hints. Um, and, and when I say hints or, or hints at how we know anything... Uh, In particular, uh, how we know deep realities, metaphysics, ultimate realities, especially God, is what we want to talk about. And I I think it's helpful to call these hints and not proofs. Because I think when we talk, many times when we talk about these things as like proofs for God, um, we think this is like an ironclad argument that no one could ever refute, right? Um, And so let me just say from the beginning... I am not interested in helping you make arguments. That's not the point of this sermon. I don't think arguments help. This is not what this is about. What I am deeply concerned about is giving you a guide that will help lead you to streams of living water. And so these are hints for that reason. Uh, Our faith is not irrational. It's it's rooted in reality, and that's what we'll talk about. But it's super rational, right? Right? Uh, Our faith requires more than reason, but it's not contrary to reason. Um, And yet, so second, hints are not proofs because as we're going to see over time, there can be an endless supply of excuses for why people don't believe in Jesus or believe in the Bible and can just question everything, and they have a question for everything, right? So, um, here's why. Romans 1.20 tells us, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And so what Paul is saying, as Malcolm talked about earlier, is in general revelation, as in nature, as we talked about in in the book of Genesis, shouts the glory of God. You can look at nature and you can say, man, God is good, look at this beautiful mountain, look at this sunrise, look at this ocean, you just see, and you go, it, it seems obvious on one level. Um, it tells you something about the world, the, the Romans says that it's clearly perceived. Now, there are two ways people have tried to interpret nature, there are two ways people have tried to say this is actually a really good argument, um, and, and one is rationalism, and so that's, that's what makes sense with our logic, with our, with our arguments, with our minds, And the other is empiricism uh, and what you can test with science. And so with rationalism, there's some really, really smart people out there. And this is where your brain might stretch a little bit talking about some of these things. This rational argument, there's one that's called the cosmological argument. Everyone say cosmological. There you go. It's even a fun word to say. A cosmos, like the world. It's a question of why the world exists. Why is there something instead of nothing? Again, some of you are like, I don't want to ask that question. But some have asked that question. Why is there something instead of nothing? Where where did that original something come from? Well, where did we come from? And some might say, well, there was the Big Bang. And you go, okay, let's go down that, that, that train of thought. But what happened to make the Big Bang? How did nothing produce something? Eventually, something has to come from somewhere because nothingness can't just explode. Does that make sense? In in his book, The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins, famous atheist, admits this is a problem. He says, Darwin's theory works for biology, but not for cosmology or ultimate origins. And cosmology is waiting on its Darwin. He's saying we are waiting on our Darwin, on our, our, our thinker, someone who can explain how life took shape. And so they feel like they, they, they can explain how life took shape on earth, but, but they admit that they have no idea where life began itself or, or the materials that produced life. Okay? That's the cosmological argument. Uh, another famous argument, we're not going to get all of them, um, the rationalists may use is something called the teleological argument. Everyone say teleological That one's a little bit harder. (laughs) You'll you'll stumble through that a little bit. (laughs) Just say, "Tell us," right? Okay. So that means purpose. And so the argument goes: our world, our bodies, atoms, molecules—they are so uniquely designed, that and finely tuned that it's just—it's obvious that they are made for a purpose to exist, and it's not just a random accident. Scientists say that life on Earth depends on, on multiple factors that are so precise that even if they were off by even a hair, that life could not exist. They call this the Goldilocks principle. You know this, right? They're not too hot, not too cold, but just right. Right? Okay, that's this is what this is. Uh, really, really scientific. The the makeup of our atmosphere is 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, uh to 0.04 carbon dioxide and other gases argon uh, are the remaining amount of that right so this is this is our atmosphere that's a very specific look at our atmosphere and yet it's the difference between life and death if some of those levels were just even slightly off and one of those levels went up if oxygen uh, went down six percent we would all suffocate if oxygen went up four percent the earth would explode into a fiery ball like, we would all just die. It's that specific. But God made us just right. This is the, the teleological argument. It's, it's pretty convincing on, on one level. Like, even the most basic DNA strands, if you break them down, they're just incredibly complex. That they need everything to exist at the exact same time and function at the exact same time for anything to work. I mean, it's a compelling enough argument that Francis Collins, who was the head of the Human Genome Project, says, how could a cosmic accident ever result in something of this digital elegance, like the DNA strand? And so people talk about this like like the great watchmaker. You you see those old school watch, not Apple watch. You could apply it there too. But those watches with all the gears and levies, like how intricately they are designed with all the gears that someone had to make it come together. That's the argument. And it's so complex. Another way of talking about this is it's like a bomb goes off in an ink factory and somehow that just produced the works of Harry Potter. <laughs> I feel like that, we just look at that and that's the sermon right there. <laughs> that's, that's the sermon, I'm very proud of that. Um, <laughs> there's no way you could get all of that beauty of Harry Potter just from a bomb exploding in an ink factory. There's just no way, it's, it, it would not happen by accident and therefore we would not happen by accident. We're too finely created. Now, as I said before, these are hints, and and I think they're helpful, but guys like David Hume, a philosopher, would, would argue, okay, maybe someone did make the watch, but how do we know that there weren't multiple creators of that watch? And you go, Okay. As Christians, we don't like that idea. And so that argument doesn't seem to work as well for us. Um, And then we say, well, yeah, but the nature speaks in the glory of God. And we go, yes, nature does speak the glory of God. We talked about that. But also sometimes nature is violent. And so like watching a lion tracking down, hunting, killing, and eating a deer doesn't make me praise God. It, It makes me cringe a little bit. I don't know about you. And so sometimes nature doesn't, it, 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 it feels like it doesn't speak the glory of God. And so while these hints are helpful, they don't necessarily tell us about the Christian God. And yes, yes a God, but not Jesus. And so they, they, these are support beams for our faith that I think are really helpful, uh, but not the whole thing. Now, others would argue that you know, we, you know, what we don't need is rationalism. What we need is empiricism. Empiricism is that scientific method. I have to see with my eyes, touch, touch, taste, feel, all of those things, I've got to see it. And so if someone said, hey, I went to see a magician, he levitated, what would you say? I've got to see that. I I bet I could see how he did it. He pulled the wool over our eyes, right? Like, uh, he's he's faking it. So we want to see it, this 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 is natural for us. We want to see if it's true. And so this group says, to know anything, you have to see it. And so, I mean, any of us have probably said this before in our lives, like, if only God would show himself to me, then I would feel better. If I could just see him, if I could just hear his voice audibly out loud, then I would, then it would, it would settle it. I think many of us can, can, can identify with this. And many Christians have gone down this road to help give us more hints they would say science is not in contradiction with faith. These things work together. And so to know anything, you must be able to test it with your senses. And so some, some Christians have gone down this path to say, let's prove it from a Christian point of view. Uh, but I think just one, how do you test the origins of the universe? That seems difficult. Um, but two, as I talked about earlier, what if your senses are failing you? What if... Things aren't working. Your eyes aren't working the way they should work. Um, you can't trust your senses. Let's just talk about this, this beautiful carpet in front of us. Everyone, look at this beautiful carpet. What color would you say this carpet is? Beige? <laughs> Something like that? Beige is a good catch all, <laughs> right? <laughs> we'll say beige. Now, let me ask you this question Why do you believe it's beige? Because it appears to be? Do you believe everything that appears to be so? Why? Well, I believe my eyes. Well, why do you believe your eyes? Some of you, I can imagine my wife saying, I'm getting very frustrated with this now, <laughs> this light of argument, <laughs> right? Like, some of us are going, stop asking those questions like this. It, it, it makes me angry. Um, but I think what we want to do is ask those questions. I mean, did you know that you can can stump anyone's theological and and, and epistemological knowledge with eight simple questions and all of them are the same? It's why. (laughs) Why? (laughs) Kids do this to parents? It's frustrating? It's the why. (laughs) It's all the same. Why pushes us deeper and deeper into ultimate reality. And so we just keep asking people why and we get into this ultimate questions, how we know anything and there is no such thing as inherent beige ness right but it's what the colors of the light are reflecting so that we can see to say it's beige and color vision scientists yes there are color vision scientists have hypothesized now that we don't even see the same colors and so what you see as beige isn't what i see as beige Whew. Are you confused yet? <laughs> we don't, it's hard to trust our senses, but let alone that. Let's say you do trust your senses. Let's say you do say, affirm and say, you know what, I, just, I believe in logic and order. But what if someone comes along and says, you believe in God? Cool. I'm glad. I'm, I hope that's helpful for you. But me, I don't. Um, and so it, they, 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 don't, they don't try to argue with you. They just say, I'm glad that helps you. And so this is kind of the postmodern way of thinking, that, that what's true for you is great, but it's not true for me. It's kind of like saying, I don't see beige, I see off-white. You see beige? Cool, that's good for you. It's really just a microcosm of, of, of the way we think in this postmodern world. It's all relative. And so they would say, there's no one religion, there's no one answer to all of our questions, but many streams going to the same ocean. Something like this argument is coming out there. So even when you feel like you have the spiritual silver bullet to answer any question, someone may come along and just come up with some of these other theories and questions that you feel like, well, what do I do? Why? Because Romans 1 tells us, 1.18, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them. And so what God is telling us is that we know there is a God. Deep down, we all know there is a God. We know it inherently, but we suppress the truth. And the suppression is not the same as ignorance. The truth is there, but but you've, you've kept yourself from acknowledging it. It's like a beach ball that you may try to hold underwater. Some of you all may have done this this past week in the summer. You try to hold a beach ball underwater, and it just naturally wants to pop up, right? And you keep trying to suppress it. And sometimes if you try to lay on it, the thing just shoots you off and it shoots up in the air because it's trying, the truth is trying to come out, but we keep trying to suppress it. What Paul is saying here is that when it comes to to knowing what we know about God, we actually know, but we don't know because we don't want to know. We don't want to know. I mean, that's a whole sermon, That's kind of the dark way of thinking things that we actually don't want to know because the truth is too uncomfortable for us and it demands too much change for us and so subconsciously we choose not to know. Which is why some people have come up with some very creative responses to how we know anything and they say like things like, well how do you know you're not just dreaming right now and your brain's off in a factory somewhere like in the matrix, like how do we know that's not true? How do you know the spoon isn't actually there, right? There's a million ways we can think of these things. Or or someone may say, how do you know that you weren't actually created five minutes ago with built-in memories? Oh gosh, is your brain hurting yet? There's so many ways to come up with alternative realities here. And so if the hints don't help, ultimately, where do we go to learn how we can hope in anything? Anything? How can we hope in anything? If if you can't even put your trust in your own senses or put all your hope in them, as unnerving as that may be, what can you trust in? And I would argue that our hope is in the Word. That our hope comes from this Word. If if you want to know how you can know what you know, Scripture itself tells us something about the very essence of the world. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And so it says it is God-breathed. It's God-inspired. It's God's voice written into the pages. Now, now what does that mean? It means that Scripture is telling us that this is God's very own words— God breathed. We, we can know because we now have access to eternity in the palm of our hands right here. And it's, it's, it's crazy how much access we have. We know what we know because we can look at this book. It's, it's, it's our compass. It's, as it says, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. If this wasn't God breathed, God inspired in just another book, then, like, let's close the doors of the church. Let, let's just give up. Like, what, what are we doing if that's, if that's true? If this is just another person's opinion, then, then we're just wasting our time. But our hopes aren't in scribes or pastors or theologians. Our hope is in the God himself who's revealed himself to us so that we can know about God through general revelation in nature, but we can know him more fully in special revelation in his book. And so as we get to unpack some of these orthodox truths of the world, how do we know anything, we, we can actually come to the access code to all of it. Now, you might ask, well, how can we trust God's word is actually God's word? See, we can always have an argument. We can always come, this, is, this is a very good question. And I think one helpful thing to do is, as we look at some of the external evidences that this is God's word, um, is to look at the amount of the original texts there are, manuscripts, that we have uh, compared to other famous documents. Why? Uh, because the more texts you have, the more you can compare them to others. And so if, if we only had two Gospel of Marks as the original text, that would be a problem because what if one Gospel of Mark said one thing and one Gospel of Mark said another thing? then you're going, well, I don't know who's right. Which one should I believe? And so that's why the number of texts is helpful. And so how does the New Testament measure up? Well, Caesar's Gallic War had 10 original copies. um, And so 10 to 15 is is good. You have a lot to compare and contrast to. Homer's Iliad had 643 copies. And so that was very impressive. You know what Homer wrote there. Uh, it, It has all of that right there. The New Testament? In the Greek alone we have 5,000 manuscripts. In Latin alone, we have 10,000 manuscripts. In all these other languages together, we have 25,000 manuscripts of original texts that are 99% in agreement with one another. And so uh, that's helpful. That's evidence we have to consider. Another way of asking this, uh, what's helpful is, what are the dates of the manuscripts? Why? Because if Mark was written in 60 AD and and our earliest copy was in 1000 AD, that's a long gap, right? And so we've all played the game of telephone. You think something might have been modified or changed over time between that gap. And so how does the New Testament measure up? Well, Caesar's Gallic War was written in sometime 50 BC and the earliest copy we have is 900 AD. That's a big gap. Homer's Odyssey was was written in 900 B.C., and the earliest copy we have is in 400 B.C., about a 500-year gap. The New Testament, written in generally 45 to 96 A.D., and the earliest manuscript we have is in 125 A.D. By the way, the Gospel of John was written in around 90 A.D., um, and so what that tells us is we have about a 35-year gap of time, uh, which is just historically embarrassingly small, of what we, what we have here. And so the, there's a theologian, commentator, F.F. F. Bruce, he says, the evidence for our New Testament writings is ever so much greater than the evidence for many writings of the classical authors, the authenticity of which no one dreams of questioning. And if the New Testament were a collection of secular writings, their authenticity would be generally regarded as beyond all doubt. And so really it's just fascinating look at, looking at the evidence here. Like how much we doubt this book comparatively. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I think it's actually really, really helpful to look at these evidences. I think it's really helpful to have these hints and these these, these confirmations. They, they help encourage our faith because our faith is rational. We want to see that it's true. But my my hope and our hope is not in these evidences. We don't put place our hope in, in these proofs and these arguments. And so you may be asking the question, well, then how do you know God's Word is actually God's Word? And here's my, here's my answer to that. The Bible says it's God's Word. How do you know the Bible is God's Word? The Bible says it's God's Word. Now, in any other argument, I would smack you. Uh, <laughs> if you I would smack you. Uh, right. Sorry, I was uh, going off script here. <laughs> this is what we call circular reasoning. Right? This is what we call circular reasoning. How do we know the Bible is God's word? Well, let's use the document in question to argue like it's God's word. Um, it's like if I said, of course doing drugs is illegal. It's against the law. <laughs> and you go, <laughs> yes. Uh, the circular arguments, as you may see in image up here, if A, then B, and if B, then A. And it so it just keeps coming back and back and back in this circular reasoning. It's like if I said 18-year-olds have the right to vote because it's legal for them to vote you're like good argument (laughs) i don't know but why how do we know you know and he would say well uh, we want to hear claims we want to hear authority behind the claims we want to say on what authority are you speaking and so when my kids ask can we have candy at bedtime i say no and they say but why and i say because it'll keep you awake they say but why finally i go because i said so the authority is there they know the authority and so that's what we all want to ask is what's the authority we want to say i want to speak to the manager i want to talk to someone who actually knows stuff i want to actually talk to someone who can make a difference if we said the bible is true because slim said it's true someone's going to go well who's slim why does that matter He's just Tyler's brother. Like, that's all he is. Like, who is slim? What's he got to do with anything? Or the Bible is true because the historian Josephus said and confirmed the things that the Bible said is true. And then you go, well, who's Josephus? Let's degrade him. We want to know who's the top dog. And and the Bible says, I said what I said. I told you I said it and my word confirms it. And that's exactly what the scripture does. It's self-attesting. It's the ultimate authority. God's signature is written all over it. I said what I said. And so let's say you, you got kidnapped, dark moment, <laughs> but then you're dropped in the middle of a field and you don't know where you're at. You start looking for what are, some, what are some pointers and some objects to help me know where I'm at. Okay, there's where the sun is. That must mean that's west. And so now you have a compass The Bible is our compass. It helps us understand what everything else happens in the world. We need this. We need an an entry point, a fixed point to tell us what is reality. How do we know anything? Because God's word reveals this. This is a compass. This is what everything is about. It is God-breathed. But is that enough? If I made that argument to one of your friends, would they go, Now I believe probably not. If you're not a Christian, and I said, here's here's some helpful hints as to why we believe in the faith. Also, the Bible says we should believe in the faith. You go, like, please don't talk to my friends again. Uh, (laughs) That won't convince you. Think about it. Does anyone, does anyone actually ever change their mind anyways? You watch any any social media debates? No one just, (laughs) political debates, you ever seen someone just go like, I was completely wrong. That's a, that's a very good point. <laughs> i changed my whole world because of this. That never happens. We just get, we just get into our, 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 our side and we lock in there and we get into our little echo chambers and we say, like, this is the right way and we never actually change people's minds because making these arguments aren't going to change someone's mind. And so if you want to educate someone, give them some facts. If you want to defend yourself, make your argument. But if you want to change someone's mind, tell them a story stories just (laughs) stories have a way of cutting through it all don't they stories have a way of just making you go like okay i'm seeing something different there all these facts and hints and proofs are helpful but what really changes someone from intellectually hearing about jesus and actually meeting him like how do we get someone to that point it's telling a story about a hero who left his home to go save a bride from this castle that was defended by an evil dragon and that hero died to save his bride and and that story is a true story and that's important to know that this is this is a true story (laughs) and so i think stories more than proofs more than arguments are how we ultimately know anything this is why your reviews at restaurants make a difference right like i don't know is it good let's see one star probably not going to go why I want to, which, which object should I buy on Amazon? The reviews, the stories about that are helpful. We want to know, what do real people think about this? We want to hear real stories, and this is, this is where you come in. Like, your story is crucial. Your story matters, and this is why Calvin doesn't actually mess with, around with any of these arguments. For Calvin, he says, he, he frames the knowledge of God with the knowledge of self. If, if you don't know God's perfection, then you don't understand your, yourself and your wretchedness. And if you don't understand your wretchedness, then you can't know God. It's, this, it's no God, no self. And these things go back and forth. And the gospel weaves those two together. That once you do know your wretchedness, then you need a Savior that will bring you to God and, to, your, and to, to the true God. And so knowing ourselves and our story is just extremely important. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, he says, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm gonna make the proofs, I'm gonna make the arguments, I'm gonna tell you about all these people that Jesus, when he after he died, he rose again and he met with all these people. Let me tell you about all these people. But then at the end, in verse 8, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, and this is just so good. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. I love that. That Paul gets personal. It's true, and I know it's true, and let me tell you why it's true. Jesus, let me tell you what Jesus has done in my life. God is real, God is good, Jesus is alive, because I know what he's done for me. I don't know about all of the theological arguments, but I know what he's done for me. And I can share that story. And that is, that is real and powerful and convincing. We, we want to know, we want to know, is this real? And many times people in the world today aren't really even asking that question, is Christianity true? They're asking, is it good? And we would say yes to both. It's it's true, it's real, and it is good. Let me tell you how it's changed me, how it's affected my life. How has it changed you? How has Christianity infected your life? That's where your story comes into play. How can we know anything? Well, tell people about what Jesus has done for you. He showed up when I was angry with God. He he showed up and he sought me when I was a stranger wandering from the fold of God. And I wasn't just prone to wander. I was actively, deliberately trying to sabotage God's work in some of believers' lives. People that I just, I I began to hate. And then I began to hate God. And I I began to curse God. And yet... He sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. And he came after me even then. And at that time when all I could see was my sin and my wretchedness. And at that time when all I could see was how far, from God I, how far gone I was from God. And when I thought, there's no hope for me. He still came after me. He still had my parents' prayers. He still had, he still had my best friend reaching out to me. He still had youth pastor coming after me. God still had my, me in his sights. That was was my story of how God is coming after me, even when I thought there's no way he would forgive me. When I cursed his name. And yet he did. And yet he did. And what made me hear that good news was I started remembering this little song that we we had sung when we were younger. That just kept popping back at the back of my mind. Jesus loves me, this I know. What's the rest of that? Or the Bible tells me so. Mm. (laughs) That little song, it it is just jam-packed with good theology. If you just look at that song, it is wonderful. (laughs) Jesus loves me, this I know, not because my mom tells me so, not because someone else told me so, because the Bible tells me so. I know I'm loved. I see what he's done for me. How can he love me when I'm suppressing the truth and unrighteousness? How can I ever be in his good graces and we hear Jesus loves me? This I know. I know it. I know it to be true and I can trust in it. Hallelujah. And so facts aren't going to change some minds. All the facts in the world wouldn't have convinced me or someone else even when I'm in that dark place of the beauty and the goodness of Christ. I needed to experience Jesus. Jesus. You see, today, orthodoxy means a high view of Scripture. That God's Word is actually truly God's Word. And it leads us to something truly wonderful to treasure. If if this book is just another book, then we have just a lot of questions to answer now. But if it is God's Word, then we actually put an anchor down and know where we're at. And so today... I want you to look at the hero of the story who died to save you. I mean, this book is the key to everything. It's the key to unpacking the deepest mysteries of God, of life, of salvation. Today, see the orthodox view of Scripture as it's good, right, true, and beautiful, and may it liberate you to enjoy God at a deeper level so that you can truly know God, and you can truly know what you know. And so ask yourself, do do I see this book as something I I should read? (laughs) Or something I get to read? that God allows me to hear all the deepest mysteries of life right in here. Take advantage of it. Ask the hard questions of it. Be, Be critical of it. Come at it. Learn from it. And so I'd say learn the hints. More importantly, hope in the hero. And then take some time reflecting on your story. Ask yourself, what has God done in my life? And then ask someone else their story and share it. Let's pray.